Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 18. Uh, We're going to do a four-week kind of mini-series in preparation for officer nominations before we jump back into Matthew to finish it out, which providentially will put us, uh, again, Lord willing, uh, finishing with the resurrection right on Easter Sunday, which will be pretty fun. But uh, where we're headed, uh, today we're going to be looking at kind of how we should think or feel about church government in general. Next week we'll be in Ezekiel 34, uh, where we look at shepherding kind of as the heart of leadership. We'll be looking at priorities the week after from Acts chapter 6, and then qualifications last in 1 Timothy. But today, Exodus 18. And again, because we hold so highly and are committed so aggressively to uh, the Holy Spirit being the primary author of the Scriptures, uh, we can say that when he wrote this thousands of years ago, he wrote it for the people that were there reading it the first time, and for you today, and every Christian in between, and those that come after. God's Word, written for you. Jethro, the priest of Midian... Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The name of the other was Eliezer, for he had said, the God of my father was my help. And delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare. And went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. 
It was his father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you, and you're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided for themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and went away to his own country. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken to us now in the reading of your word. It's good and profitable and true, for you are good and profitable and true. We ask now that you would speak to us in the preaching of your word. And we ask that you would give us hearts that are attentive to your truth. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I guess in a lot of ways it's an easy or excellent time to talk about government of any kind. Right? You look around and our American political system seems to have imploded in some fashion. All the approval ratings are just kind of at record lows. Everybody's kind of unhappy on both sides of the aisle. COVID has, well, I guess the way the government's handled COVID has created a deep-seated sense of distrust in the government, uh, something that certainly existed in South Carolina, I think, pretty much all along, but now the rest of the country is kind of catching up with. Uh, Sadly, that kind of reality I don't think has been relegated only to the the government of our nation, but also even to church government too, as we've watched denominations around us over the last really five to six years kind of implode like a uh, house of cards collapsing in on themselves. We've watched the church too movement gain all sorts of traction. We've seen allegations thrown out all over the place. It has created, I think, by and large... The, the strongest wave of kind of anti-leadership thinking I think I can remember in my ministry. I, I don't think I can recall a time in my ministry or my career, my life even, in which the average person in America was so disposed against the church and her leadership specifically. 
It's one of my favorite kind of studies to look at every year as they, they rank professions and how trustworthy they are. Uh, I don't remember who does it, but they do a massive survey every year of looking at kind of how trustworthy do you find people to be. And, you know, years ago, clergy was number one, right? Your average person on the street, you just ran into them, you say, who do you trust? They say, well, I'll trust clergy. May not be my pastor, but if you've got a pastor, I'll trust them. Um, So much so even that when I was in seminary, they told you if you ever have to travel anywhere, you have to try to get someplace that you're not supposed to be, always wear a clerical collar because nobody asks questions uh, of of clergy. If you need to get into the hospital, wear your clerical collar and sweet talk your way in. They'll always let you in. You can go visit anybody you need to go visit. Now, interestingly, here I am 20 years later, and we've watched that has dramatically changed. In fact, actually, you've watched clergy trustworthiness is way low, right? We're way, way down near the bottom. Um, much lower than you might guess. It's really trendy and easy to dislike the government in general and to dislike the church in specific and to dislike church government kind of in the most specific. Either to dislike it because we've been burned by it or honestly to dislike it because we just don't care. I think that's probably a second trend that we're seeing is people that are, um, even those that don't dislike the church or hate the church, just don't care about church government. We're increasingly losing the distinctives of what it means to be an individual church. The sermon today is we're going to try to, at least in some fashion, for a limited amount of time that we have, look at what God says, how he says we should think or feel about church government. What does God specifically instruct for us to think or feel about church government? And we're doing it in Exodus 18, right? A common sense place, uh, probably not the first you would jump to, but extremely important. If you think about kind of the chronology of the scriptures, God has set for himself a people out of all of the kind of people and places on planet earth, he has set his affection on the people of Israel at this point in history. He's chosen them to be his, and he's, he's placed his name upon them. They are his covenant people. That's why you get to see L-O-R-D in all capitals, kind of all throughout the scriptures, and even in parts like this, where he is the covenant-keeping God. He's, he's in relationship with Israel. Now, the problem here is that just prior to this section, Israel uh, was sent down into Egypt. It was uh, under positive circumstances initially, and the Lord was providing for them and taking care of them. But as they get into Egypt, there's a change of leadership, and they're enslaved in Egypt. They spend uh, a very lengthy period of time under tremendous, tremendous duress until we get to the beginning of this book of Exodus, which is, uh, for many of us, our favorite stories from Sunday school when we were a kid. And the most amazing miracles as God does uh, wonderful and, and mysterious and terrible and powerful things to bring his people out of Egypt. He sends plagues, the kind of plagues that were so gruesome and terrible that uh, we don't even fully uh, understand or comprehend how awful they would have been. But he brings them out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, all of the most amazing miracles, and brings them out and then takes them to eventually Mount Sinai where he meets with them. This is the story that many of us know, it's the chronology, the history of the people of God in the Bible. The interesting thing though, is where Exodus 18 falls in that timeline. 
In fact, actually, you could argue that Exodus chapter 18 is the entire focal point of the book of Exodus. Exodus 1 through 17 is telling the story of God bringing his people out of Egypt. Right? If you were to thumb through, this is where we get the plagues, this is where we get the reds, we get the amazing stories. Exodus 19 and following is God's interaction with his people on Mount Sinai, but 18 is something different. Right? One of these is not like the others. One of these is different from the rest. Chapter 18 is this unique chapter because in what was taking place in chapter 18 is God is presenting for the first time in the history of his people a formalized leadership structure. He's introducing church leadership to Israel. A church leadership struggle that or a structure that would continue throughout their history and then even become the foundation for what would take place in the New Testament. Your category of elders that's later adapted in the New Testament is really an adaptation of these judges that are introduced here. This is the starting point of church government. So, okay, in light of that, what does God have for us to understand in Exodus chapter 18? What do we learn about leadership, church government, church leadership in Exodus chapter 18? Well, first thing, first, the creation of church leadership, church government, is a creation that comes out of God's love. It's a creation that comes out of God's love. This is, again, I think such an interesting thing. Uh, Where this story is located in the book, it's actually, interestingly, chronologically not correct. We know that this happens often in the scriptures where when they want to highlight something for us, they intentionally move it to the wrong place so that our ears and our eyes catch on to the importance of, oh yeah, by the way, this is the big deal. You understand this when you tell stories to your family members. This is how you tell them all the time. And then this happened, this happened, this And you get so excited about the important things that you you add in details later. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, that happened too. I mean, I know it's out of order. Some of you, I love listening to your stories. You can't tell a story in chronological order to save your life. You tell it in order of importance. That's what's happening in chapter 18. Chapter 18 has been moved forward chronologically in order to catch our eyes. We actually know this in verse 5. Verse 5, it notes that Jethro goes to visit Moses and his family, or Moses uh, and the people of Israel, when they're already camped around Mount Sinai. That doesn't really ultimately happen until the next chapter. It's bumped up in importance to help us understand. All right, so that being said, it's important for us to figure out, to catch that this is so significant, but what is the significant part? I think it's intriguing that chapter 19 is where we begin to have this really intimate relationship between Israel and Yahweh, between the triune God on Mount Sinai. This is when they begin to have conversation. Remember, this is early enough in church history, early enough in Israel's history, that they're still working through figuring out what his name means. They don't know that much about him. They know that he brought them out of Egypt, how he brought them out of the land of slavery. They know that he's the covenant-keeping God, but they don't know that much about who he is. 
And I think it's intriguing that as part of establishing kind of the, the basis for that relationship is establishing church government to help the people understand. Right? His relationship for God's people, they're his people, he loves them. We talked about this last week in the sermon, that he loves his people, he loved us before the foundation of the world. That covenant of redemption that was made before creation even existed in time. Your name personally and intimately was chosen by God out of his mere good pleasure based upon nothing good or evil that you would ever do. He chose you and placed his affection and love upon you. And affection and love that would be kind of brought forth in, in beauty and with Christ on the cross. Christ in the resurrection. But it's intriguing that as part of that here, even this foundation that is being laid is a foundation of God's loving relationship with his people. This is part of what church government is designed to be. It's part of the manner in which people learn to know and love the Lord. Now, I recognize in our current climate, it's very trendy to dislike authority. Right? We don't like authority. Right? They're, they're abusing it everywhere. The government's abusing it. The Senate's abusing it. The House is abusing it. The President's abusing it. Our churches are abusing Everybody's abusing power. It's a fallen world. I mean, that should come as no surprise. Right? That was the whole point of John chapter 16, what Jesus makes. It should be no surprise that the systems of this world don't function perfectly. We live under a curse. And it's trendy for us to not want to talk about church government, to say it doesn't matter. For us to think about church government as being unimportant, or even perhaps more commonly so, to think that church government is one of those things that is easily, or it's fungible. We can just change out different forms of government, and it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter if you're congregational, it doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian, it doesn't matter if you're hierarchical, it just doesn't matter. That's not an important thing, as long as we have the gospel. And certainly the gospel is far more important, but it is intriguing that when it comes time for Israel to learn about who God is, God himself, with how he relates that story, calls attention to the fact that church government is the structure within you knowing him. It's the structure wherein you learn about him, wherein you grow in him, wherein you delight in him. This is one of the parts of, I think, this chapter that a lot of times we don't catch when we're reading through it is when we get to the, lat the later part of it, the latter part of the chapter, where Moses is being a judge. And we've talked about this, and many of us have read this chapter before. We've learned it in Sunday school. I've preached it before in this pulpit. And we talk often about how he's judging between court cases. And that's true, he was. But that wasn't all that he was doing, is it was that he was taking difficult circumstances and instructing them in the Word of God. Now, some of those were court cases that took place between various Israelites, right? I'm angry with so-and-so, you know, they weren't tending their lamp and it burned down my, you know, house or whatever it is. But that's not the only thing. 
They were also having to deal with, uh, we don't understand what, how we're supposed to live. We don't understand who God is. We don't understand what his law is like. We don't understand his word. So help us in this specific situation understand who God is. That's why the church government uh, illustration is introduced prior to Mount Sinai. Because church government is in some way the framework that God communicates to his people in some form or fashion. So I might just lovingly, kind of gently give us all, uh, I don't think a a strong rebuke, because I suspect it's not the case for many of us. But when we think about the church government, even this church's government, or Presbyterianism as a whole, or whatever it is, our denomination, and we get kind of overly pessimistic or overly angry or overly cynical or or we just don't care, I might just lovingly and gently kind of challenge us to be reminded that this church's government, this denomination's government, is given to us out of love. It's given to us so that we might know the Lord. It's part of the mechanism whereby we know him. Now, if I really wanted to step on your toes, I might argue that according to Romans 13 and other places, you should think of the worldly government the same way. But I'll leave that for a different sermon. In fact, even we could go so far as to say that even when this church's government fails, or this denomination's government fails, or the capital C church's government fails, we can know that that's out of the Lord's love because he loves his people. And even uses difficult circumstances for our good. It's the foundation for thinking about church government as the Lord loves his people. It's taking place even prior to his relationship with us. Secondly, the creation of church government we can see in this chapter is one that flows out of God's blessing. Church government flows out of God's blessing. This is why I started reading at the beginning with Jethro. Jethro is an just unbelievably interesting fellow. He is not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. And in fact, not only a Gentile, he was a Gentile priest. He was a priest in a religion that did not worship the God of the Bible. It's interesting that Moses marries into the family, uh, but he has this really intriguing relationship with his father-in-law who uh, doesn't know the Lord. And as Moses is headed down into Egypt to uh, really uh, free the people of God, at some point he realizes that it's bad enough that he sends his wife and his boys back. Like, go back home, go stay with dad. Uh, There's a really decent chance I don't live through this. I don't want my family dying with me. You go home, stay with your dad. Okay, great, that's great. Here, right, father-in-law brings the wife and the grandkids, and they all show up together, and it's this intriguing kind of moment of relationship where uh, as Jethro comes out, Moses runs into him, they go out and they meet, and they get excited, and what does Moses do? He tells him everything that God has done. And the intriguing bit is what Jethro's response is. You look at verse 10. Well, verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that, notice, covenant name of the Lord. This is not generic God. This is covenant name of God. Jethro rejoiced at all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro then said, blessed be the Lord. This is a confession of faith. This is a profession. What we've watched here is at some point along the way, Jethro has been converted. 
He's shifted alliances, no longer a priest of Midian. Now he is uh, functionally a worshiper of the triune God, um, probably very ill-informed. He's probably only had instruction coming from his daughter and his grandkids, but still serving the Lord. And interestingly, what happens? He gives, gives, delivers this great profession of faith in verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you. Praise God, this is wonderful. I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. What a statement from a guy who was just serving one of the other gods not too long ago. And then what does he do? Verse 12, he leads Israel in worship. So the kind of starting point of this conversation of church government being introduced to the people of God is through a shocking conversion. A shocking conversion. I mean, it would be the equivalent, thank the Lord, my father-in-law, Y'all know him. He's been preaching in this pulpit for months. He's a great man. But it would have been if, it, if my father-in-law was like a Buddhist priest. And my life got so complicated. I went into the hospital for COVID or something. Nikki and the kids had to go back and live with him. And through their testimony, he got converted. That's functionally what's happening here. He was a priest for the bad guys. And has been changed. So the very starting point of the conversation is one of a a miraculous conversion. It then flows out into worship where you have Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel in verse 12 worshiping together and how wonderful that is. And then on top of that, what then follows is real and genuine ministry that is so great that one man cannot handle it. Right? The, the ministry that's taking place in verses 13 and following is not bad ministry. It's the people of God are trying to sort out their lives, sort out their pains, their hurts, their sorrows in the right channels. Right? That's why I'm never upset when somebody's like, I'm having a really hard time, Pastor. I need to talk about something. Like, Great, you're going to the right channels. Praise the Lord. You're not going, hey, I'm having a hard time, so I'm going to go hit the bar. Drink myself into a stupor so it stops hurting. That's the wrong way to do it. This is the right way to do it. They're going through God's people to sort it out. My life is hard. It hurts. I'm having a hard time. I need someone to help me understand. I need someone to help me think through it. I'm having conflict with another Christian. I need somebody to help me figure out who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And it's intriguing of what's happening here is this kind of overflow of ministry. What a blessing that's taking place for Moses. And it's it's really, I just think, a beautiful thing that you get to watch. In chapter 18, you're seeing the benefits of the, the church of Israel, God's people, just written large. Conversions, miraculously, worship, spontaneous. People are just excited to worship God. And then the people of God using the proper channels to understand who God is and how he wants them to live. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us that as we are increasingly blessed, we need more leadership. The problem is, is I think in the the Gentile world, so to speak, in uh, the outside the church world, we're trained to think in the opposite. The more blessing we have, the more bureaucracy seems to multiply. And the more that we seem to be blessed, taxes seem to follow. And it creates a sense of pessimism any time that we increase leadership. 
Right? Anytime we see kind of multiplication of government, certainly in this great state of ours, there tends to be a general pessimism for when it's happening. Like, I don't need more leaders, I don't need more rulers, I don't need more governors, I don't need, I don't need, I don't need. But the interesting thing is, biblically, the pattern is actually, the more the Lord blesses you, it should not be a surprise that we need more leadership. I'd love to testify that's the case in this church. Praise God. What a blessing. As Chad prayed in the prayer today, to look at how the Lord has continually blessed this church time and time and time and time again. He's blessed us. He's blessed us. He's blessed us. Even blessed us through suffering. He's blessed us. I would say particularly throughout COVID, he's blessed us. The church has grown numerically and we've blown up. But I would say even that growth is secondary to the spiritual growth that we've watched. I mean, think about how much we've all grown spiritually just through my time in the hospital. How many times I've heard people say to me, I've never prayed like that before in my life. My family, I thank you for that. But to see a, a, a sanctification taking place in the church is no surprise that the session is going, help, we need help. Right? Our deacons are going, hey, we need help. Praise God, what a blessing. The church is growing and we need help. We have too much work to do. The session uses a model of shepherding that was written by a guy named Tim Whitmer, who is a PCA pastor. He did a doctor of ministry at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, but his model that we use recommends that your average ruling elder shepherds between six and eight families. Our current elders are running between 13 and 15 families because we've outgrown our leadership faster than we can replace them. What a great, great problem to have. I, I want us to kind of, as a church, make sure this is fixed in our minds when we talk about the officer nomination process going forward is, you know, our emphasis as, as a church has, since I've been here, has always been on quality over quantity. We don't need more officers for more officers' sake, right? We don't need warm bodies. I'm, I'm not uh, interested in placeholders. I don't need men to come in and serve that are going to do nothing but just sit there and, and enjoy the title, right? We need men that work. But what a blessing that we can say, look how God has so richly blessed this church that even as hard as our men work, and man, they do, that we can't keep up with his blessing. I think it's important that this year as we have these kind of officer nomination training process and conversations, that it be fixed in the back of our mind that this is proof of God's rich blessing in this church. You want to know how God is working? I'll show you. We need more officers. How generous and kind he's been to us. Third, we get to see here, moving on really quickly, uh, is that this leadership is really introduced uh, to be a blessing to the people. It's delivered within the context of God's love. It's a proof of God's blessing to Israel that they've multiplied so quickly that they need more officers to take care of them. But again, interestingly, the reason why Jethro introduces it is twofold, and these are the next two points. First is that it's good for the people. 
right? They're, they're doing the right thing. It is correct for them to say, we have a circumstance that we don't understand or a way in which we don't understand God correctly. It's the correct thing for them to go to their, their spiritual leaders and to say, help me sort it out. Help me figure out how to, you know, get along with my neighbor who accidentally killed my pet cat that I stole out of Egypt. Right? They need to figure that out. They're going to the right people to do that. The problem, though, as you get to see here, is that they're doing the right thing kind of so aggressively that they run into problems. I love how the text reads, uh, verse 13, the next day. So, verses 10 through 12, they have this great big party, spontaneous worship breaks out. Moses is finally getting to be with his family after who knows how many months or years away from them. And what does he do the next day? Doesn't take a day off to go hang out with the kids, right? His boys, how long has it been since he, sent his son, since he had seen his sons, right? Didn't take a day off to go for a walk with his wife. How nice would that have been? No, he's immediately back in it. And the reason why you get to see is because it's so busy. He's sitting in the seat of judgment. The people of God are standing all around him. And from morning until evening, as Jethro's take on it in verse 14, he's deciding disputes and instructing them in the law of God. He's doing discipleship slash church discipline slash kind of legal stuff all day. Jethro's there to watch. Jethro immediately sees the problem. Right? The people are eventually going to get tired of it. And they're going to get tired of it because there's too much work. And as a result, they're eventually going to get tired of waiting. And they're going to go to other sources. Right? If Moses can't resolve our conflict quickly enough, well, guess what? We're going to have to go somewhere else. We're going to have to go somebody, ask somebody else. And friends, I, I feel this tension deeply in my soul. <laughs> As this church has grown, I started pastoring here, we had 18 members. It was not a hard thing to keep tabs of all 18 member struggles. Pretty easy. I can make phone calls and one day get through everybody. I know everything that was going on with everybody. I knew everybody's business. It was easy to sit down and talk with people. Praise God, that's not the nature of the church now. He's blessed us so richly. Our, our, our role in regular tenders is, is pushing 150 I can't keep up with that. Our session can't keep up with that. It's a workload that is too great. In fact, actually, again, Chad did this in the prayer so beautifully. Man, he set me up. He did not know exactly what I was preaching on. Boy, he set me up well, though. That's why we even had to have a conversation about bringing in a second pastor. Because the work is too great. And in fact, actually, it's important that we think through these things and in talking about church government as being at its core, a blessing to the people. It's designed to be that way. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. It's not just an issue for Moses. It's an issue for the people of God. It's designed for their good, which is an intriguing thing to think about because Of these court cases that he's deciding, there are going to be a lot of Israelites that are going to walk out of there and be like, I told you, I knew I was right, and they're happy when they walk out. But there are going to be just as many 
that walk out and say, I thought I was right. It just doesn't seem fair. And I find it so interesting that it is good for the people of God to have care and shepherding and oversight multiplied to such an extent that when we need this care and instruction, we have enough people there that the men of God can tell us when we're wrong. Right? It's important to understand this is for our good. We need to have shepherding in such a way. We need to have people that are under oath committed to helping us understand when we are wrong. I find it interesting. This is reflected in this denomination's form of government that the highest level of care that can be given in our book of church order, in our, our denomination's documents, is the right of being disciplined. That's the highest one. It's more important than the right to vote. It's more important even than the right to elect officers. It's the right, the privilege, the honor of being under the care of the leadership of God. That's part of why, as we go kind of through this, you're going to hear me with a refrain constantly this year of, you should care about electing officers. I know many of us, it's just like, well, I just don't care. I I trust the session, and they'll figure it out. This is one of those things we don't figure out. You have to. But it's why you're going to hear my constant refrain of of quality over quantity. We We need officers that are godly men, skilled at the task. We don't need warm bodies. I've been there before in my various ministries and the career the Lord has given me. I don't want to go back to that. It's an awful place to be. Choose leaders that are good leaders because these men, we find out later in the New Testament, are God's gift to you so that you would do well in your life. Kind of flip side to the same coin, while it's designed to be a blessing to you, it's the multiplication of leadership, this church leadership is, is designed to be a blessing to the leaders. Right? Verses 13 through 16 are really reading like a man who's getting ready to have a heart attack. A guy who is so busy having to govern the people of Israel that he literally doesn't even get a day off to go hang out with his family that he hasn't seen in multiple months, maybe years. He hasn't seen them. I mean, think about those boys, how much they had grown up. He might not even recognize one of them. Doesn't even have the privilege to take time off. That, that is the recipe for burnout and a heart attack, unlike anything I, I can even imagine. That's where Jethro steps in and obviously is like, whoa, 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 this is bad business, man. This is bad practice. It's going to wear out the people because they're going to get tired of waiting, but also you're going to burn yourself out. Further, you're going to end up in a situation where because you're burnt out, you're not going to have proper accountability. You're going to have a loss of camaraderie and you're going to struggle. I would lovingly say, again, please be in prayer for the officer nomination process in this church, the officer training process throughout this calendar year. I'm going to speak on behalf of the elders without their permission and without uh, them weighing in. They need help. Right, again, I told you the stats. It's six to eight. 
They're running 13 to 15. They need help. They need good, godly, qualified men to help. Pray for the help. You've already heard me make that same request this year, and you've heard the session make the request, uh, well, I guess last year now, on my behalf. I need help too. That's why we're bringing in a second pastor. Again, praise God. Again, all of this is God's love. All of this is God's blessing, but we really have needs in leadership here. The whole point is we want to do this well. Help our deacons, our elders, and the pastor. And again, why? The goal behind all of this is that the body gets to function in a healthy and robust fashion. This is all designed so that the the church of God does well. It's designed here in Exodus 18 so that Israel, in the state that they're currently in, would function in a way where the people have uh, the most growth and have the most joy and have the most delight, where the worship of God is not hindered, but it's instead fostered, it's promoted, uh, where the leaders are able, we're going to talk about this in two weeks, to have proper priorities to spend their time on the things that they need to spend their time on. It's designed so that the people of God flourish. session this year is working through this officer process so that this body, this portion of Christ's body, might continue to flourish. Now, just on one kind of tangential note before we end, this is not as easy as it sounds. And it's part of why I love Jethro as a figure. Because Jethro is this, he's this most unbelievably kind of intriguing character, namely because he's a Gentile that is taking the wisdom gained through a lifetime of Gentile service and applying it with the good godly wisdom of a converted heart to create something that's useful to the church. This is going to be part of the challenge of electing good elders and good deacons is that we have to have men that are both spiritual and men that are competent in the ways of the world. Well-balanced, well-rounded, wise men. Right? A man who knows the Bible perfectly in and out, up and down, and has a bad reputation because he doesn't know how to exist in the world around him is not useful in the church. We'll get to that in three weeks. Likewise, a man who is the perfect businessman, the perfect consummate, uh, brilliant thinker, knows all the ways of the world, but doesn't know the Bible and doesn't love the Lord is useless. It's worldly wisdom with a spiritual focus. It's uh, general revelation and special revelation brought together. It's all of God's wisdom brought to bear for the benefit of the church. Now, uh, I'll make one kind of major uh, application for this church specifically. Uh, You can look at the history of this church, and I think there's been a number of kind of turning points that the Lord has done amazing things, in some cases miraculous things in the story of this church. I suspect uh, last year, 2021, is going to be one of those where I almost perished and the Lord miraculously healed me. That's going to go kind of a significant point in the history of the church. I will say, in my tenure as pastor of this church, um, there's been a major turning point 
in the health of the church and the flourishing of this church, the blessing of this church, when he gave us a fully stocked leadership of good and godly men. Many of you know Grady and I did this by ourselves for a long time. It was really hard. And it was interesting that when the Lord provided a full slate of elders and deacons, not just one deacon and two elders, but a full leadership, I'm not kidding when I say it was the next Sunday. We had 15 visitors the next Sunday, and they all stayed. And the church continued to just explode, both numerically but also spiritually, through the ministry of these elders and deacons. It may be easy for you to think about this as just being a process that the church just kind of goes through every once in a while. It's not just that. This is a process that sets the trajectory of this church for years to come. It's not me. It's proof of that. I was taken out of it for three months, and you got to watch what the session does without me. They did brilliantly. But this is why it's so important. So I would ask that you would go ahead and even now start praying. Because I know you love this church. (laughs) There is no doubt in my mind. The body of this church loves Christ Ridge. I'm glad. I love this church too. I would ask that we start the praying process for the men that God will raise up to serve as elders and deacons in this church. And that he would lead us to those men this calendar year and that we would be blessed together. Let's pray.